Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, we'll talk about the unknown country musician who's topping Taylor Swift, Drake, Olivia Rodrigo, and Morgan Wallen on the Spotify charts. Plus, we'll play a round of Would You Eat It or Not? Pink Pineapple Edition. Then more and more people are opting to pick up their food rather than get it delivered. Plus, we'll dig into a report that shows the world's middle class is getting wealthier while the rich have taken a bit of a haircut. It's Thursday, August 17th. Let's ride. Toby, I found this a little interesting. A new survey showed that 63% of Americans under the age of 30 prefer to watch TV in a language that they know with subtitles. And that is a far greater share than older Americans who prefer to watch TV with subtitles. What do you make of this? I make of it that... I'm totally on the subtitle bandwagon. Even when I go to theaters, sometimes I feel like the movies need subtitles. And this is not just me thinking that. Into the Spider-Verse, which just recently came out, they admitted they had sound mixing issues in the first scene and it was hard to hear. And so I think a lot of people are coming to realize why struggle through and like barely pick up on dialogue when you're in the comfort of your home, might as well put some subtitles yeah. on. It just helps with like the cognitive load of it, I think. It's definitely been a trend, but I do not subscribe to subtitles. I th- It's not the way the movie or the show was intended and especially if you're watching a comedy show or something you you don't want to see the, the joke you don't want to see the punchline or joke ahead of time that completely ruins it so i can't imagine watching seinfeld episode 30 rock episode the whole idea of comedy is the timing and the tension waiting to hear the punchline and the fact that you can read it ahead of time kind of ruins it yeah. for me but i, I kind of get it. it it is obviously subtitles are important for accessibility for a lot of people but it is kind of interesting to see gen z really embrace race subtitles and reading a show as much as watching it but yes you don't want to miss anything I, I hear that and there are some shows like you know and I in you know Dairy Girls or other other movies that are in kind of a thick Irish accent with Colin Farrell you're like yeah I might need a I might need a subtitles to understand what he's saying absolutely team subtitles baby all right now let's jump into our top of the show or we are digging into target earnings to see how the retailer fared The answer, not too great, Bob. Target's comparable sales fell 5.4% in in the second quarter, which was worse than Wall Street's expectations of a 3.6% drop. Two factors at play that hurt Target. One was the hullabaloo around its Pride Month collection that saw the same sort of conservative backlash as Bud Light has been facing. The other, though, is a much more looming threat, and that is the fact that consumers may be taking their discretionary spending elsewhere to places like TJ Maxx and Dollar General, who had much better quarters than Target. Both those things have led to Target shares kind of getting hammered over the last three months to the tune of a 22% drop. Neil, how do you think Target is positioned right now in terms of the overall retail landscape? Not too great. (laughs) Um, You know, so Target is the place that you go for discretionary items like toys and decor and things that you don't necessarily need. So as consumers pull back on that, 
and they head to Target and lower cost retailers for the things that they absolutely oh, need. Away from Target. Oh, wait, did I say towards Target? Towards Target, yeah. Away from Target. Uh, 54% of Target sales are in that discretionary uh, bucket, so they are really not in a good position, and that's why I think that you see investors uh, shying away from them a little bit. Though we should say that sales, uh, that their stock actually popped yesterday on the earnings report, kind of because expectations were so low right. and Target beat profit expectations, not sales expectations, but profit expectations, because they did fewer discount, less discounting than they did previously. So I would say the overall mood around Target is a little antsy, especially uh, with uh, student loans coming due in the fall, with more people pulling away from discretionary spending. Yeah, and I was also looking into, because the two main questions Target has to answer is, how long will this shopper backlash to, kind of like the conservative uh, shopper backlash that I mentioned? And the answer is it's already kind of fading. So sales in June were down more than 7%, but in July that number was down to 5%. So we see it slowing a little bit. And then if we actually go back to another Target controversy, in 2013, when it was hit with this massive data breach, it was this really big, bad PR uh, fiasco for Target. Comparable sales recovered within two quarters of the event happening. So I think we've made it through the first quarter. We'll see what the second quarter brings. But it, usually these things don't last much beyond two quarters if we look at historical data. Right. But we, <laughs> when this happened to Bud Light, I think the general vibe was that, okay, Bud Light's getting boycotted by conservatives and this will blow over like in the past. Like you mentioned, a lot of these boycotts kind of fizzle out within the first few weeks. Bud Light has been wrecked because of this. And Target, I think people were surprised to find out in this earnings report just how much the backlash to its LGBTQ merchandise, which really wasn't any different than any other Pride Month uh, situation that any other retailer did, uh, really, really banged it. And they are getting hit on both sides because it's not just that they had it in the first place, but their response to it by mm. removing a lot of this merchandise, moving it to the back, uh, and taking it out of their stores uh, was was hit by liberals as well. And so there you had two sides kind of boycotting Target. For sure. And then if we look just broadly at consumer spending in general, retail sales actually jumped 0.7% last more last month, which is more than expected. Again, Americans have just continued to shop, even though we've been in this huge rate hike cycle, we have seen consumer spending be super resilient. Although one thing that's lost in that resilience role narrative is the fact that Prime Day happened this past mm -hmm. quarter, and Prime Day was the biggest ever on record. Of course, that's the day that Amazon offers a bunch of discounts. So I do think we might have been seeing Prime Day put yeah. consumer spending on its back a little bit. So maybe next quarter is a will be a better indication of where consumers truly are at. Also, people are shopping less for apparel and home goods and doing more experiences. The uh Cornell, who's the CEO of Target, says guests are going out to concerts, they're going to movies, they've seen Barbie, they're having these experiential moments and spending less time in department stores, which does not work to Target's favor. Okay, moving on, I want to talk about two massively popular songs that emerged in the past week or so. They could not be any more different in tone and substance, but I think when viewed together, they can reveal a lot about where the music industry is right now, because neither of these songs come from a professional musician. The two songs I'm 
talking about are Rich Men North of Richmond, a country tune from a Virginia farmer named Oliver Anthony. And the other is this Eurodance parody, Planet of the Bass, written by TikTok comedian Kyle Gordon. The success of these songs is pretty staggering. If you go to Spotify's top 50 most played tracks in the U.S. right now, you'll see Rich Men North of Richmond is number one ahead of Taylor Swift, Olivia Rodrigo, Morgan Wallen, Drake, and Billie Eilish. Planet of the Bass, meanwhile, caught fire on Twitter, where the music video racked up more than 100 million views. Gordon, who became popular during the pandemic for his comedy sketches on TikTok, was recently invited by the Jonas Brothers to perform the song at their concert. And the crowd went, I think, even more bonkers for that song than the boys from New Jersey. From a musical perspective, I think these songs are pretty good. Oliver Anthony has this soulful Chris Stapleton vibe, and Planet of the Bass has one of the catchiest hooks you will ever hear. Plus, it's very funny. But to be this popular is kind of nuts. Like, what do you think's going on? Well, so that, yeah, the narrative that people have been kind of introducing is this is the new age of the music industry. You can go f become famous without any help from record labels. But I also think that this has been happening since almost the rise of the internet. If we go back to YouTube, the early years of YouTube, you had songs like, like remember the Bed Intruder remix? Oh, yeah. Um, and then also... I'm in your window. <laughs> yeah. And then Chocolate Rain was one where... So as soon as you have platforms that allow people to post their own content, of course, you're going to have like these rising stars, these diamond in the roughs. So I don't necessarily think that this is a modern thing. Obviously, TikTok hyper uh, accelerated this trend and but it was interesting to see that like twitter and x played a big role in sending both these songs viral so i do think that yes the music industry is changing but it's been changing since the mid 2000s when youtube started not just in the tiktok era the big question here that a lot of people are wondering is whether oliver anthony is an industry plant because this guy came out of nowhere he's this virginia farmer he's a former factory worker who just set up a video with him playing a guitar with a microphone in his virginia backyard with his three dogs playing you know sitting below him and he sings this kind of white working class anthem that a lot of conservatives have latched onto and says he's speaking for the uh, you know the un the unclaimed uh, white working class person who has been forgotten in our you know liberal elite world and Washington D.C. fat cats are kind of just thriving while everyone else is getting left in the dust. So a lot of progressives are saying, there, how is this possible that this guy is so popular? And so that is the, the main question and the debate is whether he is an industry plant. <laughs> That's just such a trendy thing to say right now. Whenever yeah. someone gets famous, you just go industry plant for sure. I do think both the songs are incredibly catchy and you can't, you can never overlook like the actual substance of the songs themselves. Even Planet of the Bass, just, I can't, I've been saying life, it never die. <laughs> Women are my favorite guy, just in my head over and over because it is such, it, it, it encompasses what Europop is, like those catchy lyrics that they don't really mean anything. They're yeah. just general positivity. And I think that one is, it's a parody, obviously, but it's unironically also a pretty catchy song. And then the other one, uh, Richmond, North of Richmond, is if you look at the lyrics, some you might think that it could verge into parody territory, but it's also a very, very good song. He's a very good singer. So I don't think that you can separate the fact that these two things have some substance to them and they actually are just bangers. Yeah. And the fact, just the fact that they were so popular, I think speaks to the existential crisis that uh, labels are facing right now. They're like, how are we supposed to pick pop songs when, you know, a TikTok guy can 
go to the top of the charts. And this random guy uh, in Virginia who's a farmer can go, you know, viral and be more successful than Taylor Swift on Spotify. How am I supposed to pick a pop star in this world where basically we're living in a never ending American Idol audition <laughs> yeah. where anyone with a phone and TikTok can go viral? And you don't I think the other big thing is you don't necessarily stay on top because there's always someone else yeah. who's willing who can go viral right after you. So success is fleeting, I think, in this new music industry era. Let's launch a song, Neil. Let's let's go to the top of the charts, you and I. All right, let's move on. Uh, today, it's not Toby Trends, but I have a trend I want to tell you about anyways. Food delivery is getting a lot less popular as people are increasingly opting for takeout or in-person dining. So sweet green fulfilled fewer delivery orders and more pickups in the last few months. Kava deliveries have also declined while Chipotle's delivery revenue dropped 16% last quarter compared to last year. Besides helping them get their 4,000 steps in a day, analysts attribute the drop in deliveries to consumers watching their wallets a little bit more. Plus, now that the pandemic lockdowns are behind us, it's a lot tougher to spam that delivery button from your couch, given the fees that come with it. Neil, we had a lively discussion over Slack yesterday yeah. about delivery versus going to pick it up yourself. Do you ever treat yourself to some delivery? Sometimes, but only when there's a crazy deal. Because... Delivery is so expensive. so expensive and it really does blow my mind how much people deliver food to themselves. And I know for a lot of people it is necessary and, you know, they may have, you know, mobility issues and delivery is important. But for the people who can go walk outside and grab a, a takeout, it always kind of blows my mind how much people get delivery. But that's just me. Um, the the canary in the coal mine here, I think, was Domino's mm -hmm. because you always associate Domino's with delivery. But recently we talked about this in an earlier episode. Uh, Domino's after years of saying, no, we're not going to go on Uber Eats, they decided to go onto this third party marketplace because they were seeing a, a massive decline in delivery and they need to juice those sales because that accounts for a large part of their business because they're higher profit margins too. this delivery because they can charge often restaurants charge more for delivery for the same food, just yeah. the price. It's just so expensive. And then also tipflation is an issue that yes. people started uh, cited because when you ask for delivery, most people, the, like the social norm is to tip. So obviously that makes it more expensive. But then only 13% of consumers say they left tips when picking up takeout orders. Yeah. So it's basically like, do I want to spend an extra $5 tipping this delivery person 20% or do I want to just get my butt off the couch and go pick it up and then don't have to pay that that extra uh, tip. So yeah, tipflation is also an, an aspect of this. Are you also worried about getting less food when you get delivery oh, from no. places like Chipotle and Sweetgreen? So this guy in Chicago did an experiment. He went and picked up Sweetgreen and he also ordered delivery of the oh. same menu item of Sweetgreen and he found that the online order weighed 24% less. Wow, that is so interesting. And I think it must be when the, you're observing the person making it food they feel uh responsible to, to top it off that's it, so this is an n of one we should say but it yeah. doesn't you know it, it confirms a couple people's hypotheses more food all right all right neil before we jump into the next story we're going to take a quick break All right, we are back with Neil's Numbers, the segment where I share three numbers from the week's news that will make you sound as smart as Will Hunting at a Harvard bar 
For my first number, I want everyone to think about a salary's relationship with geography. Typically, salaries are greater in a place with a higher cost of living and wealthier residents, right? It's why when Toby and I complain about how much we pay for rent in New York City, people in Oklahoma are like, well, you get a New York City salary so you can afford it. And while this relationship may be the case for many professions, it is not the case for one. Doctors. In an analysis by the Washington Post, the top states for the highest earning physicians are South Dakota 1, North Dakota 2, Alaska 3, then Wyoming and Nebraska. Not exactly the super wealthy cosmopolitan places you might expect. A doctor's average annual income in their prime earning years was $524,000 in South Dakota compared to $454,000 in Connecticut. So what's going on here? First, there's a lack of supply of doctors in more rural states, so Economics 101 means that doctors have more pricing power where there's less competition. But how can these people in rural areas pay up? Well, the government puts its thumb on the scale in a big way through Medicare. Medicare makes sure that retirement age Americans in rural states like North Dakota can afford to pay as much for health care as the same people in Connecticut, which allows doctors to charge the same whether they're in Fargo or Greenwich. Wait, you're on a New York City salary? I'm on an Oklahoma salary. What in the heck is going on? But yeah, this is this was a super interesting stat. Uh, it's doctors work in like one of the few industries that actually isn't determined by demand or disposable income because yeah, the government comes in yeah. and, and can subsidize healthcare. So God, I would just ball out on a on a doctor's salary in North Dakota. Well, would you? I think I, I've, I have a couple of friends that are doctors, and I've heard this before where they talk about friends who move to rural areas, uh, you know, outside of suburban Texas as well, where your dollar goes a lot farther and you get paid the same. And there's this question of, like, do I leave all my family, my friends? You know, Start personally, I'm an East Coast guy, so I'm just talking about East Northeast yeah. people who are like, should I ditch it and just get become like a millionaire in South Dakota where I could have a mansion or... Or do I stay closer? It's to not home? a mansion. You open a compound, invite all your friends to live on that, and just have a great time. I like that one. Um, all right. Our second number. Uh, on Tuesday, a Vietnamese electric vehicle startup went public via SPAC, and its valuation shot up to $85 billion, which made it more valuable than car makers that have been doing this for decades, Ford, GM, BMW, and Volkswagen. So what is VinFast? I hadn't heard of it before yesterday, that's for sure. It is a six-year-old company that started deliveries of its first model, an electric SUV just this March. It's the automaking unit of Vietnam's largest private conglomerate, Vingroup, which is owned by Vietnam's richest man, Pham Nhat Vuong. Needless to say, this guy is doing really well. Already a billionaire, he added $39 billion to his net worth in a single day as VinFast shares shot up 255%. The key for VinFast to sustain its momentum will be to gain a foothold in the U.S. Right now, it imports its cars to the U.S., but it's made plans to spend $2 billion to build a new factory in North Carolina. This gave me shades of Rivian. This mm -hmm. gave me shades of Lucid. It's the EV boom happening in another part of the world. Although the growth narrative of if we can catch on in the U.S., then we can justify this valuation. That is very compelling. So I can see why it jumped so high. Obviously, if had I a little had dip to, yesterday. Too. If I had to guess, yes, it will come back down to earth a little bit. But saying like, hey, if we can establish foothold in the largest consumer market in the world, that's a pretty good growth narrative. Yeah, especially because Japanese and uh, Korean cars are so popular, but right. Chinese cars have never caught on here. It's, it's I mean, if if they can if they can do it, 
I'll, I'll check out the If is a big word in the car industry, <laughs> yeah. because Rivian and all those other electric vehicles were like, we're going to the moon, and then they can't produce, you know, a couple hundred cars because of production delays. All right, our final number comes from a tweet I saw by economic researcher Joey Politano, who posted a chart showing something that may explain why no one can afford a home right now. More of America's housing stock is from the 1950s than the 2010s. Yes, our neighborhoods are more boomer than the crying laughing emoji. 13.7 million units online in the U.S. were built between 1950 and 1959, while 13.6 million were built between 2010 and 2019. And in super pricey markets like New York City, the problem is even worse. 71% of New York City's units are from before 1951. And you'd think we'd address this, right? Get some new housing stock to bring down rents like Minneapolis. Of course not. Manhattan, where rents soared to a record high last month, approved approximately zero new units of housing in July. And in the other four boroughs, just 10 buildings with 275, 279 units in total were approved. This made me actually bullish on the remodeling industry because if there's no new houses yeah. being built and you're buying all these aging houses, then you have to update them, have to remodel them. So I guess this is why Home Depot's had like such a last couple of uh, decades has done really well. Warren Buffett's betting on, on housing, but also the uh, housing remodeling market. So to me, remodelers are look, looking at these stats and just licking their chops. All right, Neil, thanks for those lovely combo of Neil's numbers. As always, I actually have a little one-two punch of positivity that I want to float your way as well for our next story. The total amount of wealth in the world is rising substantially, while at the same time, global inequality is falling. Those conclusions come from Swiss Bank UBS's 14th Annual Global Wealth Report and are a little bit of odds with basically most of human history, where most new wealth quickly concentrated in the hands of the rich, both in terms of individuals and countries. But in 2022, that trend reversed a little bit. Global median wealth went up by 3% last year. And for the world as a whole, median wealth has increased fivefold this century, according to the report. Now, a lot of that gain in the last century has come from China developing into the world's second largest economy. But this report still forecasts total global wealth will rise 38% in the next five years, with middle income countries benefiting the most. So Neil, this was obviously a report that kind of shined a good light on oh, yeah. where the world's at. Anything else stand out to you? Well, you just see all these narratives being like, everything is getting more unequal, everything is getting more unequal, and you actually say that without looking at the data. And if you look at the data, the, uh, the world has is more equal now than at any point since 1875. So middle-income people across the world are gaining wealth at an extraordinary pace, and the wealthy... It really, the wealthy really has to do with what happens in the stock market and exchange rate moves because most of the decline in wealth at the top here was because of certain moves uh, of various currencies against the dollar. So they have all of their wealth stashed in markets and other assets. Meanwhile, regular people are doing pretty well all across the globe, and it's really cool to see. Yeah, there has been what people have coined a rich session, which is a drain of wealth on the top. But, and so if we actually want to put a number onto that, the world has now 3.5 million fewer millionaires in US dollar terms than it had in 2021. But there's still a total of 60 million millionaires in the world, so. Uh, well, I, didn't qu I wanted you to quiz me. Oh, uh, on how many there were? Yeah, there's 60 million millionaires. Okay, well, I actually do have a uh, another quiz if I can find the stat real quick. How much private wealth do you think there is in the world? I think I read this out, like 685 
billion? What is it? In the, no, in the world, Neil. In the world, uh, we're we're talking five hundred trillion. Yeah, it's four hundred and fifty-four trillion at the end of last year. That would be a good. Why did I say billion? That's, yeah. that was really embarrassing. That was a, hey, it's early, but that would be a good consulting question. Estimate the total yeah. net worth of the entire world, and there you have. I would ask. I would ask a consultant how many billionaires are there in the world. Yeah, that would be my question. I think you asked me this, and I still got it wrong, and I'm not going to answer again this time. All right, so that's some good news on the inequality front. Let's wrap up the show in the produce world, which is proving yet again that anything pink turns to gold this summer. Food producer Del Monte's profits surged 26% last quarter thanks to booming sales of its pink pineapple called Pinklo. Surprise, that is not a Barbie collab. The pink pineapple is just a pink pineapple that hit the market in 2016 and has become this luxury showpiece to show off at events and on Instagram and TikTok. And the reasons profits are so meaty is because this pink pineapple is not cheap. On the East Coast, it'll cost you $39 to order a single pink pineapple, but maybe it's worth it because apparently it is less sour and juicier than a traditional yellow variety. I am all in on a pink pineapple. How about you? I am all out what? on a pink pineapple because if you Google images of this pink pineapple, which I encourage you to do, it looks fleshy. It looks like a, a slice of Christmas ham if you open it up. Even you, you say it looks delicious and kind of gives you candy vibes, but I think it gives fleshy vibes. So I do definitely think it. so much of taste does come from visuals. And so mm. I don't know if I could get over the fact that it looks almost like human flesh. Eating well, it, if but. the texture is more pineapple-y, then I think it's fine. But I'm all in on the pink stuff, the rosé, pink <laughs> lemonade. Like, let's turn everything that ruby red a little bit. So it's pretty interesting how they how they uh, made this thing. You're wearing, I'm wearing a, a pink, pink shirt, shirt as well. Neil is the summer of Barbie. I do have a question for you, Neil. If you could see one other food bioengineer to make it a different color or enhance a color, is there one that you really Ooh. think that you'd like to see? Um... Wow, I, I have an answer while is, you while you're really think. putting on the side. Go ahead. <laughs> My answer was grapes because you have the green grape, you have the yeah. purple grape. So yeah. But I think it could if you had like some more Skittles flavors in there. What a beautiful like grape bowl. I guess there are some yellowish well, grapes as well. Well, there are cotton candy grapes, which has been cited as very similar in terms of GMO foods like this pink pineapple, where they just ratcheted up the sweetness and they released them to a lot of success. So cotton candy grapes, I think I think you are right. in on the right produce. I'm I'm gonna hit up Trader Joe's after this, see if they have any. Do you have an answer? No. <laughs> okay, that's that fine. You you contributed cotton candy grapes, so we'll allow that. Like different I maybe mayo would be more palatable if they turned it more to like a barbecue sauce kind of <laughs> Like a little darker. I think people oh get turned God. off by that eggy yolk. I was I was talking like whole whole fruit or something like that. I they could turn mayo any color they want with just some food dyes. Also, yeah, you might that, straight to jail with that take. I do not want my mayo to be any browner than than it is right now. Holy moly! All right, let's just leave it at that because we're about to go to we're about to fight. Uh, that is our show for today. I hope everyone has a wonderful Thursday. We are almost there to the weekend. Uh, we always love getting messages from our audience. So if you want to share your thoughts on anything you heard this episode, maybe which food you would turn into a different color. Our email is morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com. Let's roll the credits. Emily Milliron is our editor and producer. Samantha Velas and Raymond Liu are associate producers. Isabel Wynn is our technical director. Don't worry, everyone. Uchenna is fine. He's just on vacation. <laughs> Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup is out for delivery. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>